This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we are here, of course, to talk about the coronavirus pandemic. The CDC director has dampened some some hope that the U.S. is starting to get some kind of control over COVID. He told the Senate today at least 90 percent of the population is still susceptible. That's after nearly 7 million cases we know about and 200,000 deaths. So how much longer do we have to go? We have some good news on the vaccine front, but, well, then we have to balance that with some concern because it's 2020 and you can't just have good news no not at all no we gotta we have to be punished (laughs) if we have good news yeah we're also going to continue our special series into how the pandemic is impacting the farm workers in california's central valley today we look at uh, the people who harvest and process all that food and can the u.s military be the key to increased testing in the country one doctor says yep And a note, uh, we've covered everything on this podcast from the research to the potential treatments to the economy. This Friday, so two episodes from now, a very special podcast. The entire one will talk with family members who have lost loved ones to the virus. We'll be joined by a grief counselor to help sort out all the emotion. Coronavirus Daily, A Time to Grieve, is this Friday. But let's uh, start this podcast with the virus in the U.S. Eric Toner is an internist and emergency medicine doctor. He is a senior scientist at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Doctor, how can herd immunity work if so many people are clearly still susceptible? Yes, that's correct. If we were to stop everything that we were doing, uh, we would see death rates um, probably in the millions. So um, we've had a great deal of success. We've been able to flatten the curve as we were trying to do. But it's a long haul. What we're doing now, where we are right now, what we are living through right now is what success looks like. It is we are wearing masks. Most businesses are open with some restrictions. We have to maintain distance and we have to avoid um, indoor crowds. That is managing this epidemic. And that's what we're going to have to continue to do probably for the next year or so, um, even if we get a vaccine sometime this winter. Where do you think the break is or the disconnect where it's just, is it hard for people to realize that the new normal was going to last this long? Or why do you think the herd immunity talk keeps coming back? I mean, even today in the Senate uh, testimony, Rand Paul, Senator Paul was talking about New York and he, he had said that, you know, they were up there and, and Dr. Fauci had to correct him and say, no, you're, you're alone in that. They're nowhere near it. Yes. You know, I, I, it, it's misinformation. Um, whether it's intentional or not, I don't know. But it's, it's clearly uh, a misinformation, a misunderstanding of the science. We are nowhere near herd immunity, and, and we don't want to let ourselves get, um, get through this pandemic by letting people get herd immunity through infection. That would be a, a, that would be a tragedy. You know, uh, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but um, so many people always will try to make a comparison with the pandemic of 1918, excuse me, the uh, Spanish flu pandemic. Was that equivalent? Were there the the same issues with people getting tired of wearing masks? And and how did that eventually end? Yeah, so um, there were uh, similar situations. People um, did 
in in some cities, people did get tired of wearing masks, and and city leaders um, dialed back their you know, their interventions too quickly, and they saw very large second spikes in in um, in the number of cases and and in deaths. So um, it's very clear from 1918 that both the benefit of various efforts at social distancing and um, the harm that can be caused by ending those things too soon. The vaccine question now. We seem to be at the page, at least from the CDC and Dr. Fauci and others, this is now you know widely for second or third quarter next year, 2021? For most people, yes, I think that's probably uh, reasonable. I, I, I think it is um, reasonable to expect that one or several vaccines will be available sometime in the winter, uh, but they'll be in limited quantity. They will go to those people who are greatest risk or greatest um, risk of exposure, so healthcare workers and the elderly and those people with underlying health conditions and some essential workers. But for most Americans, it won't be for, you know, quite a few months thereafter. Dr. Eric Toner, internist, emergency medicine physician, senior scientist, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Johnson & Johnson is beginning a huge final study to try to prove if a single-dose COVID-19 vaccine can protect people from the virus. No one wants to get multiple doses, so if this proves effective, it could be a leading vaccine. That's the good news. The bad news, because, you know, both sides, is that there are worries these, these trials are not nearly as rigorous and aggressive as they should be to wind up with the most effective vaccine possible. Dr. Peter Katona, clinical professor of medicine, infectious diseases at UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine, used to work at the CDC. Doctor, start with the good, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine trial, and this is the, the one dose. Well, a single-dose vaccine is much, much preferred over a two-shot vaccine. It takes half of the stuff you need to be able to do it twice. So that's a really good thing. But at the same time, we're having some bad things. For example, the Pfizer vaccine requires very, very cold refrigeration, which is unobtainable at a pharmacy or a physician's office and has to have specially designated containers to be able to store it. That's not such a good thing. And also the fact that maybe three-quarters of the population is very skeptical about not only COVID vaccine, but even taking flu vaccine also makes a, gives us a problem. There was a, a, a lot of discussion the other day. We talked about it on the show as well, about uh, the notion that, that the companies, whether it's Moderna or, or Pfizer or Johnson & Johnson, you name them, that they may be rushing uh, to complete their trials in too short a period of time so they will never really know how effective any of these vaccines are at preventing more serious cases of, of uh, COVID? Well, there's a complexity to this. For one thing, we have uh, public pledges by nine major pharmaceutical companies that they will not rush the studies. We have data and safety monitoring boards. We have FDA vaccine advisory committees. All of these things are a good thing in terms of not getting a vaccine out too soon. But we also have an unprecedented interference with FDA and CDC by the government to basically push things out maybe incorrectly or too soon as well. So those things 
have to be weighed. But also, I think it's important to understand that the 30,000 people in a phase three trial seem like a lot, but they're actually not. I mean, for one thing, it's divided into two groups of controls and people who receive the vaccine, 15,000 each. And also, maybe assuming a 1% prevalence, you're talking about 150 cases in each group that are going to determine whether or not the vaccine is effective. So that's not going to address high-risk groups like healthcare workers, um, people over the age of 65. There's not going to be enough numbers to be able to say that. So it's going to take a while. It's not going to come out in the next few months with reassurance that the vaccine is doing what it's supposed to be doing. Where do the worries rank? Is it higher on the list that, you know, six months after you take the shot, something could happen, that there's some long-term effect from something going wrong, or that they put it out there and it doesn't work for everybody or for the most severe cases, and we don't know yet until people start taking the shot and getting the cases? I think very much the latter. Um, You know, as things go on, we'll know more in two months, more in three months, more in six months. So I think the latter statement you said is the one I would be most concerned about. Dr. Peter Katona, clinical professor of medicine, infectious diseases, UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine. All week, we're exploring how the pandemic is impacting farm workers in the Central Valley of California. Now, you can argue that it's the country's most important agricultural region, Without it, your grocery stores would start to look pretty empty. Today, KCBS's Kathy Novak talks to some people who pick the fruits. She found out they're risking their health doing essential work in a COVID hotspot and still finding it tough to pay their bills. Mauro Santos Diaz is showing us around his workplace. He's a crew leader in this vineyard where they're picking grapes and laying them out to be dried into raisins. 10 to 12 days. Workers are paid by volume. For one quarter mile row of vines, $85 to $90. $85 to $95 to, for the entire row. I can't even see the end of the row. <laughs> he says a good picker can do it in about four hours, but the harvest has been light this year. Fewer grapes mean less money in the pockets of families already struggling during the pandemic. Sometimes when you pay the rent, then you can't pay for other things. That is difficult. Maria Sanchez has health issues, so she can't work. Because her husband's hours in the fields have been cut, she's had to pull her sons out of college so they can also pick fruit to help out. I feel bad because I want them to study. I want them to have careers and earn more money, not work in the fields all day for about $14 an hour. Nayamin Martinez interviewed farm workers early in the pandemic for the COVID-19 farm worker study. That was a common denominator that people were struggling to be working the same amount of hours that they were normally working at that time of the year. Some told her crews had grown from 40 people to closer to 100 as workers who lost jobs in other sectors returned to the fields. Because there's more labor, then they are able to finish the work faster. But that means that, you know, every worker receives less pay because instead of eight or nine hours, it's just five or four. Uno no tiene, pues, documentos. This woman is undocumented and didn't want to give her name. If you don't have documents, you don't get any benefits. So you risk getting sick working in the field. Then, if you get sick, you have to pay to take a test. They send you home, and they don't pay you for the hours you lose. 
She says she usually gets by working 50 hours a week for about $13 an hour. But when she showed up with cold symptoms, she was told to leave and get a COVID test. That cost her $100 and eight days of work while waiting for the negative result. And because her husband was deported in recent years, when she is at work, her five kids are left on their own. Well, I have to take care of this one here. The eldest is 18, but it seems like this eight-year-old is in charge. I change her diapers and stuff like that, and then, well, I give these two breakfast and lunch. Yo quiero. I don't want them to work in the fields like I do. Her father's wish was for her to not work in the fields. He wanted her to study hard. Showing off her honor roll medals, it's clear she's doing that. I'm the smartest one. Tomorrow, we'll meet some mothers who've had to give up their work to look after small children while the schools are closed. For Coronavirus Daily, I'm KCBS's Kathy Novak in Fresno County. Doctors have been saying the best way to get a handle on the virus is for more testing. But how can you do that? Well, one epidemiologist has an idea. The U.S. military. Harvard University's Michael Minna says tests need to be produced the way we build jets and bombs. He wants to use the wallet to the Department of Defense to produce the tests on a macro scale. He talked about that idea with KYW's Jim Melwert. I think what needs to be recognized is that PCR is a terrific test, but it has been used in a way that has stretched our laboratories to their extremes at the expense of other clinical testing that we would normally do, in particular things like HIV, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and other infectious diseases that normally get performed by the same people in the labs. So it's, it's got its place. I think the co-option of our clinical laboratories to perform surveillance testing has been problematic on many fronts. On the one hand, these, these labs were never designed to be high throughput in the way that a pandemic demands. And so what that says to me is we really didn't have a public health laboratory system set up. And I think one of the most crucial things that I still don't see happening is we should be taking this opportunity with all of the money that exists as a result of this pandemic. We should be planning and building true public health labs right now. Um, if we're not doing that, we're failing for our next pandemic. And I really think that we need to be thinking now when when everyone is energized to do so and to put billions of dollars into it to produce actual laboratories that will be able to deal with this kind of thing the next pandemic that comes around. Um, with PCR being too sensitive, I think that there continues to be just an immense amount of confusion that stemmed from Aporva's uh, New York Times article, which I think was, I mean, I take some responsibility because it was really a story that I brought to the New York Times And I think it was written for the most part correctly, but it led to a lot of confusion. And that confusion is that the PCR is too sensitive, not for diagnostic medicine, but it's maybe too sensitive for public health use. If, we're, if the goal is to identify people who are currently spreading virus. And that's because just mathematically, you don't even have to do any biology You just have to know that people transmit for a short window of time and stay positive on PCR for a long window of time. And that means that the average person taken off the street who's an asymptomatic individual will have the average person who's positive and asymptomatic, and you don't know anything about their exposure history, on average, they will have already passed their infectious stage. And so that could be almost seemed seen as a not, I don't, I, I want to make it clear, it's not a false positive for COVID at all. It's, but it is a 
false positive or maybe a late positive is the better word for transmissibility. It means you've probably missed that person's transmissible window, which means you've largely missed your opportunity to act. And the only thing that can ameliorate that, it's not a problem with the test, it's a problem of frequency, but PCR can't be spun up enough. We can't increase capacity of PCR enough because it's lab-based, it's, it's, it's difficult and all these things. We, we can't get it to a point where we can be doing PCR tests on, on sort of half the population every third day, for example. Maybe at Harvard and MIT and university campuses we can, but we are ivory towers and we can build our own labs. So I think that that's really where the PCR issue came in. I, I want to make it clear that PCR is a, ter- is a terrific tool. If I'm a diagnostic physician, I want to use PCR. If I'm a public health person, I want to really focus on what's the most frequent test that I can get. What's the test that will allow me to, to test the most people the most frequently if my goal is to use testing as a way to remove people who are infectious from the population? And that's where these rapid antigen tests really start to shine. We're starting to see more and more of them come out. I'm, I've been very grateful to the FDA to continue. I was a little bit down on the FDA a number of maybe a couple of months ago, um, and they've been extraordinarily active uh, in in being willing to discuss with myself and and some of these other um, test manufacturers to see if we can somehow rethink or accelerate the pathway to just improve the pathway to get these tests out and rethink sort of what metrics a public health tool needs to meet versus a diagnostic medical tool. And so um, we've had some very productive conversations with the FDA in the last in the last month or so. And so I, I think that we'll continue to see antigen tests come to market similar to the Abbott Binex now, which was diagnosed, which was, has an FDA claim for symptomatic use. But we'll start to see, I have one right here. This is a different paper strip test. This is actually a plastic one, but if anybody cares, I'll just show you why I call them paper strip tests. If you take off the, the plastic piece, you have just a little piece of paper in there. And so the plastic piece can maybe be made, um, everyone could have one just like a contact case, and then you just put your little paper strip in and do the test. So I think we'll end up seeing paper strip tests come become much more available. They can be made in huge numbers. And I really encourage the federal government, and I want anyone who has a voice um, that the federal government might hear, to en- encourage federal government to start producing these, to not wait until each little company comes out and builds one, but just to take the onus on themselves and, and treat this in the same way that we build jets and, and bombs and things. Um, let's build one of our major tools against this virus um, at the federal level, rather than just buying whatever private enterprise comes out with. And a, a really quick follow-up to that. Uh, is there a timeline that you see on that? And what price point would be required to make it uh, legitimately, uh, or I guess, functional? Well, to be clear, I want one of the major reasons for the federal government to produce them is because I don't want the public to pay for these. Um, this should be seen as a public health good Every person who's not walking around you, every stranger in your environment, if you're in New York City or if you're in Chicago or if you're in Kansas, wherever you might be, we all want to be safe when we walk around. And so by, by giving our neighbors tests, we become safer. And this should not become a class thing. This shouldn't become anything other than how do we make the public safe? And only the government can do that. This is a true, this is the epitome of public health. Now, I've already said that our public health infrastructure really is terrible in this country. So I'm not convinced that we'll get there. I'm not convinced that if the federal government does start to produce these, 
that they will figure out appropriately how to distribute them, but I'm hopeful. Once again, a note, we've covered a lot on this podcast. This Friday, it is a special one. For the entire podcast, we are going to talk with family members who have lost loved ones to the terrible virus. We'll be joined by a grief counselor to help us sort all this out. It's Coronavirus Daily, A Time to Grieve, two episodes away, Friday's edition. If some of you will be heading to Helsinki Airport in Finland, you'll be able to get a quick coronavirus test. It's voluntary, no nasal swab either. You want to know who will be giving you the test? Well, it's not doctors, and it's not going to be Mike, it's not going to be me. Dogs, yes, right, dogs will be doing the test. Two of them have been trained to detect the virus by sniffing the sweat of arriving passengers. People can volunteer to wipe sweat from their neck, and then they leave the swab in a box. A trainer then puts the box next to containers of other scents for one of the disease-sniffing dogs to smell. The process takes about a minute. If the dog gets a positive result from the neck sweat, the person is sent to the airport's health center for a free virus test. I will take the dog test. I will run from the plane, from the gate, to the test so I break a little bit of a sweat. You know, because right. yeah. if you're totally calm, like you're not gonna get anything. So, so the dog just sniffs your sweat. Yeah, I'd rather play with the dog though. Yeah, I mean, uh, is that a good or bad job for a dog to have? It probably doesn't care. It's a dog. Yeah, but it's, it's like, happy about everything. Yeah, it's just sniffing all the time. Probably gets a treat for each person he finds. <laughs> uh, you can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Thank you.